that. So, summer on the mountain. We're doing this whole mountain climbing thing. And I, got, I just got to tell you, I'm about as qualified to talk about mountains as I am about farming. So, if you've heard my farming uh, analogies, you know, the only, I actually, uh, when I was in high school, maybe middle school, I was invited on a hiking and camping trip uh, in California to, I believe it was the second highest uh, peak in in California. And about halfway through, it, I wanted to die. Like, I just, I, I don't believe I've ever been that miserable in my life. I mean, I was just, uh, so I, I'd never gone back. So, so, but I like this kind of like this, we're kind of doing the mountain thing, but we're doing it in the comfort of the flatlands of Florida, and and you know we can run over to Red Eye pretty easy and get our coffee and 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 things like that. That's pretty good camping when when you ask me and mountain climbing. But uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we we actually began it with the previous series uh, with inverted looking at the eight Beatitudes, and we're continuing it for the summer, summer series as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's kind of interesting, you think about it, that we're going to have uh, all these sermons about a sermon. What could be better than that, right? But it, these teachings are very different for Jesus than, than a lot of the teachings that we're, we're come to accustom to with Jesus's teachings as far as, you know, Jesus spoke in hyperbole a lot and in parables and all of these kind of things. And this is one of his uh, few times where he just like, this, this is what is expected. You want to be a follower of me. This is, these are the things that you do. These are things that are, are readily absent from a follower of mine's life, a disciple's life, and these are things that are part of a disciple's life. And they're, they're really, really clear. And I think uh, over the, uh, the centuries, uh, some theologians have, have tried to uh, kind of explain them away or make them easier to attain, but I I don't think that that's what Jesus intended. I believe that, that, that Jesus came and, and these are the, the tenets of our faith. These are the things, the countercultural ideas that, that set us apart for his glory. And just like inverted and, and, and those eight countercultural ideas of how to achieve the rich and abundant life the, and fulfillment, that these in very way are the tangible things that, that, that we should be about. And it's interesting when you look at the language, and we'll, we'll begin the, you know, the, 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 the actual sermon today, that it's very direct. There's not a lot of ambiguity about, yeah, I wonder what Jesus means about that. Like, he's pretty clear. And I remember many years ago when I was a younger pastor that when there was hard teachings of Jesus, I felt like I had a burden to, and this is going to sound terrible, but to make it okay. Like, Jesus said this, but, but Jesus, is, he understands. He's a good guy. And which is true. He understands he's a good guy, but... but, but 
He means it, right? <laughs> and, 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 you know, this idea that we don't want to, uh, we're, we are totally reliant on grace, but that's not our objective. Our objective is to follow Jesus as closely as we can. And where we fall short, yes, we experience God's abundant grace, but that should not be our motivation. Got to go experience some grace today. No, we want to experience the, the splendor of being close to our Lord and Savior and the blessings that, 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 that manifest out of that. So as we get into it, you might want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be beginning in verse um, 13 today. He, he starts out with a very simple statement, but I believe it's so profound. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Not you can be. It's a good idea that you would be. None of that. That you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Now, if you're like me, when I hear the word salt, you know, I think instantly think of table salt maybe, but now we're all a little more sophisticated and we want our sea salt, right? <laughs> right? We want the sea salt. And, that, and now sea salt isn't even good enough. We want our pink Himalayan yes, sea salt. And then like the newest trend is, you know, oh, we can't just have the pink Himalayan sea salt, but we have to have our, our salt infused with like mango or, or, or jalapeno or something like that. Wait, I'm all about it. I like it. But, but, but if you're thinking pink Himalayan salt, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about, you know, uh, hey, pass the salt. No, no, no. So he is he is actually talking about something very actually different than what we understand, that their salt in the ancient Near East uh, was straight out of the, it was, the ground. It was very, very crude. And, and they, uh, they used it. It did flavor their meals, but they didn't add it like, you know, on their French fries like, like we would. That, that it would actually preserve their food. That the, the difference between rotten meat and, and fresh meat was salt. That this is how, how it preserved uh, things. So you go back through, and it's like, you are the salt of the earth. You are the preservation of the earth. Not only your family, not of your friends, not of your church, but our calling as the church and this is heavy. Our calling is church, of the church, part of our calling is to preserve the good news, the blessing of Jesus Christ. That, that we are to protect that. So where does this, you know, losing its saltiness business come in? You know, what, what does that look like? Because our salt doesn't lose its saltiness. Like you can suck on salt all day. Mmm, some people are like, Ew, yeah, yeah. anybody like lick pet pretzels? 
come on, I'm not the only freak, you know. Sometimes, like, if it has big old chunks, this has nothing to do with anything, but there you go. The big old chunks, I, like, just bite it and, like, crunch on that little salt. But I was thinking the other day, a little bit of infused jalapeno salt on pretzels, that would be the bomb diggity dog. All right, back to Jesus. So this, this crude salt, uh, it actually had a lot of other kind of things uh, in it, and, and the sodium chloride would actually, if it was exposed to moisture uh, or condensation, it would actually, that, that sodium chloride would come out of it, and, and it would actually lose its effectiveness. Not only would it not flavor the food, but it wouldn't preserve it either. And, and Je- this is what Jesus is talking about is, you know what, if, if, if the salt, what they understood as salt back then, loses its saltiness, loses the, the sodium chloride, it, it is worthless. He says, it'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Or in Luke chapter 14, I love this. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 and verse 35. Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. That word manure pile in Greek, because you all need to know what manure pile in Greek is, is uh, copria. So if you're in Greece and somebody says you want some copria, the answer is no. (laughs) He says, Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It's not even good to throw on manure. Is Jesus being clear here? Okay. So what what does this mean? Well, one of the principal tenets, what he starts his Sermon on the Mount is with this idea of salt. Salt in the ancient Near East did what? Preserved. And, And it was so... Our job, one of the, you know, the first points of this thing is, look, if we are, not, we are not the preservation of God's love and mercy and grace here in the entire earth, then what good are we? We aren't even good to be on a manure pile. We, we are just going to be thrown on the ground and be trampled underfoot. And I read one commentary this week about that. Uh, kind of the, the idea that those who are doing, who those who are going to be the salt of the earth and going out and showing love to the whole earth, that, that they will walk over that. I was like thinking about, about that. And it, that's actually true, isn't it? You think about, about churches that have, have lost their saltiness. You know, and... I, and, and and the church starts to die, right? When they stop doing what the church is meant to do, and one of the tenets of the church is, is to, to be a preservation of God's love in this dark and hurting world. When we stop doing that, that we lose our saltiness, our piratiness, you know, our, you know, the salty pirate, salty Christian, you know, that, that, that we lose that saltiness. And at that point, the church dissolves. And 
God calls others to continue his mission, to be the salt of the earth. And I think as we start, you know, that, that this is a really, this is an important thing, and I don't think that we should just let it go, that, that this idea of, of preserving the gospel and it, all its nutrition and moistness and, and, and not allowing it to, uh, to rot in our, our care is essential for our generation, that we have been entrusted right now with the gospel, that we are the ones as individuals and as we come together as the church to preserve the gospel in our time. Now, he doesn't just stop there. He continues on and then he moves into this metaphor of of light. And in verse 14, he uses the exact same sentence but changes the words just a little bit. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Not you may be the light of the world. You can be the light of the world. That you are. And, And I think that this is, again, when we become part of the church, the body of Christ, and the body directs the heart and mind, right? That, that when we really understand that, that we are the light that penetrates into the darkness and realize, you know what? There is no plan B. That we are it. I don't know why that's been so heavy on me in the past past few years that you know that this is our time. I think that so often we wait for our time to come or that you know and then we miss our time and then we look back and go I wish I did better with when I had my time there. We do it with jobs and relationships and things like that. But we can't do it with the church. Like Dan was talking about, we have 300 volunteer opportunities. You know, that blows me away, you know, that, or service opportunities here. You know, that, that the better that, you know, that, that the better care that we handle our time with the church, uh, the better the next generation will be. And there's been times throughout the history of the church where people never really took on that burden of being the salt and light in the world during their time, that they squandered it. And Jesus is saying, look, you are the light of the world. Don't be waiting for somebody else that I am calling you and have called you like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. And I don't know if you've ever like driven through the desert and you've seen a city uh, in the distance and in the, in the light. It's a, it, it's a neat thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's like a beacon. Verse 15, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, this is a really interesting statement to me. The light is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. It doesn't matter what you think about that person. If they're in the house, they're getting the light. You don't get to, you know, 
block them off. There's this idea that God's light is for everyone. It's not like we have like a little uh, pen laser light with a little red dot thing and we torture the cats with it. We go, you ever, huh? Yeah, but then if you like take that light and you like run it into a chair and that's torture. Not that I would ever do that. You might, but I wouldn't. But sometimes we think about our Christian faith as a, as, as a laser beam, right? And a little red thing, and we're like, okay, you, and you, and you. And, and what Jesus is trying to convey here is that, that we are the whole light of the world, and, and when we show God's light, his desire is everyone to, to be filled with that light and the warmth and all the characteristics of the light, and it is not our job to be selective of it, that we are the light of the world. And then in verse 16, he clears it up, all this, and he says, in the same way, in the same way of being salt and light, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Will you guys read that with me? Because it's really important. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, with that statement from Jesus, you ever think about like some of the other verses, like don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing? Or, or what about Matthew chapter 6, which we'll get to in the summer, but I'm going to give you a little preview. Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> this is Jesus again. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your heaven, Father in heaven. Wait a second. Well, which one is it, Jesus? Right? Jesus is first here saying, let your good deeds shine for everyone to see like a light. Don't, don't discriminate. Let the love flow. But then in the next chapter, right in verse 1, watch out, don't let your good deed, don't do your good deeds publicly to be publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Anybody catch the nuance, the difference? What is it? Your motivation. Your motivation, the difference is the motivation. In the first verse, you're, you're do, letting your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father. This is what I call being God-centered. Versus the other one, being good-centered, what he's saying is watch out about being good-centered, me adding that part. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. So if your motivation is to be good, to be admired, then this is a warning. But if you're doing it in order to bring glory to God, then do it publicly. Now, I know you guys know this, you know, that, that you know, one of our big initiatives uh, that, that we do is, is Red Eye Coffee. And, and we are very public about that. We want people to see our good deeds, but not because we want them to see E3, not that they see us, but that God will be glorified. I love it when people ask me, why do you do this? 
Why does your church or, or Helen or, or why do you put so many hours into this? And I'm like, well, thank you for asking. I, I do it because I want to tell you about, about Jesus. I, I tell about how, how he's impacted my life. FSU has uh, asked me to teach uh, several times and talk about Red Eye. I've told him every time, I cannot tell the story of Red Eye without sharing my faith. And every time they said, if that's the story of Red Eye, then come in and say it. And, and I've been on, on boards. I have actually stepped off of boards that, that have gone from being God-centered to good-centered. Because I wholeheartedly believe Jesus when, when he says, look, watch out. Because if your motivation is good-centered, then that is going to reflect on you in your accolades, but as a follower of Christ, that we don't have that option. That everything we eat, everything we drink, everything that we do is to bring glory to God. And it may look the same on the outside, but when people get to the inside and ask why, it better be I not the thing is, and I just I'm a humanitarian, and I want to do good around the world. That's fine; people can do that. But as for a follower of Christ, when we act, and we should act, and when we are the salt and we are the light, that it is solely for the purpose to bring glory to God. Just a second, my tablet died. Okay, here we go. So in Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 8, that, that going back, you know, uh, a couple of chapters, uh, we're said here, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Now, I think it's really, really important for us to understand that we are saved by grace. There is no doubt about that. We are saved by grace, but it is also true that we are saved for works. We have been drafted to the A-team. We have. I mean, could you imagine? Um, uh, oh, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in trouble for this. But who's, who's the guy coming from Notre Dame who's going to be the, the quarter, or at least? Everett Goldston? Goldston. Okay, so I'm sure there was a lot of back, stuff going on, right? And get him here. If you don't believe that, well, good luck. So, could you imagine Golson? Golson showing up after being recruited and going, no, you know, I just uh, think I'm going to hang out. It's cool. No, you know what? They went after him for a reason, for a purpose. He has been drafted, or however that works, is coming uh, to FSU because, you know what? FSU wants to win another national championship. That is the sole purpose that he has been, been chosen to come. The good news is you guys and I, that we have been bathed and, and, and in, in grace and saved by grace, for a purpose, and that is to be the salt and the light in this lost and hurting world. 
James talks about it this way, that uh, talks about faith without works is dead. I like to think about it this way. I'll watch what you do, and I'll tell you what you believe. Let me say that again. I'll watch what you do, and I'll tell you what you believe. Because people act on their beliefs. If you trust that God is sovereign and God is in control of your finances, you, you'll tithe, you'll give offerings. If you believe that God is sovereign over your time, that you'll serve, you'll go on missions trips. If, if you believe that, that God answers prayer, you know what? You'll pray. I'll watch what you do, not in a creepy-like way, but... <laughs> If you invite me to observe your life, I can tell what you believe. You could do the same with me. You could observe, you know, that, that, you know, that I uh, give time um, to Red Eye, and I've, you know, we moved our family here because we believe that the church matters. We believe that we are the light of the world. I, I, I try to eat cleanly because I believe that, that it'll make my body feel better, and I will uh, be able to connect with God better because of the choices I make with my diet. Same with, with exercise, that I believe when uh, I treat my body as, as a temple, that, that I will be a whole person and, and be able to more closely relate to the heart and mind of God when I treat my body that He's entrusted to me with the care that he knit me together with in my mother's womb. So the difference is the motive. And then he kind of changes kind of his tone of talking about exactly this and that, and then he goes in and just talking about, you know, the law of it. You know, what does this look like? And, and are we under the law or then are we under grace, Jesus? And Jesus handles this in verse 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I've come. Jesus, again, is going to be very clear. Look, I don't want any ambiguity about, about this. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophet. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So what's the purpose of the law? Well, fortunately, that Paul and Jesus have been very clear about the purpose of the law because the law was given alongside the blessing uh, that God gave us that, that, you know what, even though we are under the curse and, 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 and the subject of sin or the, the uh, result of sin is death, that, that we are also under God's grace. And if you turn to Galatians chapter 3, in verse 19, Paul writes this, Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was, proclaimed, who was promised. Who's that child? Jesus. Verse 22, But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. This, again, this, this very clear teaching 
that we find our freedom in Jesus, that we are set free through His sacrifice, but we are set free not to continue in our sinful nature, our our, uh, missing God's blessing, but we are free to pursue Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to invite others to come along with us. In verse 18, he continues on and says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Verse 19, so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in, uh, in the kingdom of heaven. And then he finishes up with this warning in, in verse 20. And this is why you shouldn't take verses out of, out of context. He goes on, he says, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the law of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. From the Beatitudes, you remember justice and, and, and righteousness. There was a Greek word, the same Greek word that Jesus used for both. Do you guys uh, remember what that word was? Dikasune. And remember, dikasune actually means our righteousness is us, the church, creating this environment where people can experience the unbuffered presence of God, what it means to be right with God and right with one another and right in His creation. That that, that is the biblical definition of righteousness. And here he's saying, look, be warned. I warn you, unless your dikasune, unless your righteousness is beyond those of the Pharisees who externally do all this, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that, he circles back around to talk about, you know what? It is through me and my grace and your total reliance on my grace for you to be fulfilled and to have that righteousness, that dikasune, because that dikasune cannot be achieved outside of me and a relationship with me, not only through my forgiveness, but through my leadership. And ultimately, as we go through this series, that it's really about dikasune. It's really about righteousness, being right with God, being right with people, being right with his creation, and creating that space not only for ourselves, but creating that for the world, to be the salt, to be the preservation of the good news that righteousness, righteousness will come and happen, that we are the agents of righteousness according to Scripture, and that that we are to be the light of the world that invites people into a loving relationship with God, people, and His creation. You guys pray with me.